0: We'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew nine if you're not there already. Um, in this season of uh, church revitalization that we're in, where we're we're trying to rally around this call to follow Jesus together, we've been looking at the the book of Matthew and seeing that um, the Jesus of the Bible has all of the authority. And authority is a, a pretty tricky subject, a pretty tricky word in our culture. And but if we're going to take Jesus seriously as he's revealed in Scripture, then uh, we just we have to see that that he makes incredibly bold and absolute statements uh, about his authority and in, in kingship and, and, and the question is put to us Matthew uh, the author inspired by the spirit is putting a question to us will we follow Jesus because you know we might believe in Jesus we might believe that he's god uh which you know if you read in, in mark this week a, a demon said that he's like what are you doing with me Jesus the son of god you know it's like uh, even demons see him as god um, but it seems like there's something different that would save us than, than the demonic theology. Or we might even believe that he died for our sins, but do we believe and live like he really is the authority of the entire universe? That to be a Christian, to be saved, is to live our lives like like he is the authority of them. And Matthew's been going through all these different areas of reality, nature and disease and disability and forgiveness of sins, and all these different areas of reality, showing Jesus is just absolute authority over them. Uh... And to see, to, to put the question to us, will we submit to this authority? And the, and the other beautiful, encouraging thing about this is that there's this constant theme of faith. Uh, beholding Jesus and his authority requires faith. It requires this, this courage where we put our belief in, into action. Um, faith simply is uh, belief with action. Like if you believe theoretically that a bridge will support you over a river... Uh, it doesn 't really do you any good until you actually you know walk across that bridge you can 't really call it faith unless you walked across the bridge, even though you might believe in like the physics or the you know whatever the the, the codes that make it safe um, or whatever and and so to say that we trust Jesus to save us from our sins uh, but avoid or resist actually like walking with him, following him uh, doesn 't really make sense if we trust him, then we have to trust all of him, Lord and Savior. if he 's our bridge to God the Father then it doesn't matter to just believe that he is the bridge. We have to actually you know, walk across it in, in his way of life. So I wanted to set us up there because today uh, we see Jesus' authority in kind of a different realm. And the the main idea here is that Jesus has authority to smash our false religion. Jesus has authority to smash our false religion. And if, and if you're willing uh, just to... Be open to it. Uh, my hope is that we could consider how Jesus smashes our false religion, my false religion, and your false religion. I want to to consider the 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 possibility that that all of us have to some degree some some dead false religion lurking in our hearts, and that we can kind of enter into this passage uh, in Scripture and and kind of let Scripture read us, like let it let, let it show us what's going on in our heart, not to condemn us, uh, but to set us free, because Jesus is a king who liberates the captives, uh, and I think one of the ways he does that is by tearing down cold, dead religion, uh, our stressed out, lonely, striving, and uh, systems that we're working in to show us that by grace we're invited to to a marriage feast, to to a marriage feast of steadfast love, a, a wedding where we belong and we're accepted and there's lots of food and good drink. So let's dive in. To this passage here, look at uh, Matthew 9, verses 9 and 10. Uh, a really uh, helpful thing when reading scripture, especially kind of like what we're doing with Mark, where we're reading it just a chapter at a day and just kind of going slowly, is use your imagination and identify with the different characters. And so for today, uh, I invite you to identify with uh, the Pharisees in this passage, to kind of put yourself in their shoes, like what they were seeing and what they might be thinking. Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, he he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Now, Due to the fact that we're reading this two thousand years, you know, after it was written or after it happened, and we're just in a completely different culture, I think a lot of the scandal of what's happening right here is, is lost on us. Because culturally, what is happening with Jesus and the tax collectors and the sinners would have just been like completely outlandish. And so if you'll indulge me, I want us to just enter in with our imaginations and and imagine Jesus um, just walking down the street with some of his disciples. And he sees uh, an, an abortion doctor walk out of a clinic and, and work, go to get into his, his shiny you know, Mercedes or, or whatever. And Jesus sees him there and says, Follow me. And this abortion doctor gets up out of the car and follows him, says, Okay. And the doctor says, Hey, you guys want to come over for dinner? And so Jesus and his disciples go over to an abortion doctor's mansion that was paid for by performing abortions, and they have a huge feast. And then more people start to show up as the as the evening progresses progresses. And at first uh, in walks a, a transgender woman, like pre surgery, pre hormone therapy, so she slash she has you know stubble on her face still, and she's with two of her friends uh, who uh, are two men who are married and are showing lots of public displays of affection, PDA. And these three people they get a seat at the table and join Jesus, and he greets them and asks them questions and. Gets to know him. Next, the door opens up, and it's this this super fake tan guy with slick back hair uh, who eventually lets you know that he owns this this online porn empire and has made millions of dollars exploiting, exploiting young women. Next comes in a, a dude with a shaved head and a swastika tattooed on his neck and a, a wife beater on, and uh, he, he's a neo-Nazi, a, a new uh, all-right guy. And he sits down at the table, f- and he's followed... I don't know how these people hang out. He's followed by this lady with with dreadlocks, big dreadlocks from her hair in this in this shirt that says the, the Green New Deal will set us all free. And they sit down at the table. And then a chubby guy walks in with wispy balding hair and he's sweaty and breathing a little bit hard. And, and it turns out that he just got out of jail for molesting children. All these people find a place at the table with Jesus and He's not rebuking any of them. He's just being a guest at a table, getting to know them, talking to them, telling stories, listening to their stories. I know this I know this is absurd. I know like I'm swinging for the fence here, but, but how do, how does this picture make you feel? Because I want us to see what Matthew is showing us is, is is a moment. It's not just where like Jesus is with some people that have a beer with dinner and all the other people are teetotalers or something like that. Jesus is is with people who are seen in that day and day age as like the worst of the worst, as like the untouchables, as like the people you just couldn't imagine even sharing the same air with. Because when we say Jesus loves the outcast, when he loves the unlovable, when he loves the sinners, it was the people of his day who everyone had written off, people, others actually... They actually viewed as unclean. Like if they were touched by them, then like their dirtiness, their sin would like rub off on them. So they would they would actually avoid them. And my hope is that for at least one one of those characters, all of us would have our stomachs just kind of royal at the thought of being being near them. And then can we like, put ourselves on the outside of this gathering with the Pharisees looking in, the people who are doing their best to be good people and follow the rules and seeing Jesus, this man that's got all these, all these crowds around him and all this hype, sitting down and sharing a meal? Can we see Jesus being comfortable with the kind of people that we are deeply uncomfortable with? Being kind to people that we would avoid and never want to talk to. These, and I want us to see that these are the people who are drawn to Jesus. These are the people who just come in and recline with him at table. They're drawn to him. It's the people who in this, the class system of his day are, are on the wrong side of the line. They're the people, uh, they weren't weirded out by him. They weren't intimidated by him. They weren't re- resistant to him and all because he was using all these you know, big theological words or something like that. Whatever is going on with Jesus and how he presents himself, The worst of the worst aren't aren't intimidated. They're they're drawn to him. And the Pharisees, the good people, the winners of his day, they're on the outside, and they're just (laughs) seeing this play out, and to them it's so wrong. Not that person. Like, How can you sit there with that person? Why aren't you rebuking them right now? You are now unclean. And that's what happens. Look at verse 11. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with the tax collectors and sinners? This is such a silly picture. Like in my head, I imagine them like maybe in like the back patio of the abortion doctor's house, like, you know, having a cookout and stuff. And the Pharisees come up to the fence and they get like, you know, hey, Bartholomew, you know, or one of the disciples that we don't know anything about. Like, what did you do, Bartholomew? But they just say like, hey, what, what is your teacher doing? And I bring this up because the people who resist Jesus, the people who are intimidated by him, who are kind of picking fights with him or questioning him, they are the the people who had a pretty good life put together. And so I just want to put the question out there that if Jesus, kind of like Sue shared, uh, in, which I can totally identify with in my story as well, if <laughs> Jesus is someone that we're not super drawn to, then my hope is that we can throw a lot in with the Pharisees and see what Jesus says to them. Because remember, they have a system. They have a way of doing life that they, to where they feel okay about themselves. And that's why in, that system is not the way to life. Jesus is the way to life. So by very nature of Jesus being there, he's disrupting their normal. And so they... They whisper to Bartholomew, like, hey, what's going on? Like, why is Jesus hanging out there? And for, I guess Jesus has super ears, and he hears from across the room, and he answers them. He rebukes them in front of everybody. Look at verse 12. Look what he says uh, to, to you and me and our false religion. On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." He tells them, I didn't come for you. I didn't come for the self-righteous. I didn't come for the people who have a system that they're pretty, they're pretty okay with and they just want to keep, keep to themselves. I came for the people who have given up hope because they knew they had no shot to get to God on their own. They had no shot to get to God by anything that they've done. They view themselves as hopeless cases spiritually. And Jesus is pointing out the false religion, the dead religion, because one of the components of false religion is the division of sin into two categories, big sins and little sins. The big sins are the really bad ones that we would never do. Like, sure, we're not perfect, but we don't do those. And the little sins, like, of course, they're not good, but everybody sins. Everybody's a sinner. To err is human. Uh, and so those are, those are my little ones that, you know, I'm working on kind of at some point. Because religion, false religion, is ultimately an attempt to make ourselves righteous, to make ourselves feel okay, like that sense that we all have that like we're not okay, that something's deeply wrong with us. Religion is the thing that we do to make, our, to make that feeling go away. And so we pick some things that we can do, and like those are the good things that I do. When we pick some bad things that we don't struggle with, those are the bad things that I don't do. And then just like for self-preservation, we have to ignore our little sins. We have, or We have to minimize our sins to, to the category of little uh, because if we really face them, then it would, it would make our whole system kind of fall apart, that we really aren't acceptable. And humans are geniuses, are incredibly creative at, at making these categories, at what they put in these categories. Uh, like a missionary told me that in some places in Russia, uh, watching TV for Christians was like the devil. Like at least I don't watch TV and then that same missionary told me that when they visited Ukraine, it was like, if women wore makeup, that was a big no-no. Like, w- anything you do is fine, but women can't wear makeup. We picked these, these little arbitrary things. Like, in our history, it was probably drinking. Like, that's kind of the Baptist joke, uh, is that we, that we don't drink. But then we're all, you know, we have big potlucks, and we're, you know, we're all overweight or whatever. Because almost no one, very few religious people, would say, yeah, I'm perfect, just, just because you can admit, like, of course I'm a sinner, I have sins, uh, doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, that, that we're free from the, the risk of dead religion. Because religion would say, yeah, I'm a sinner, but. False religion has a big but. But I don't do that. At least I don't do that. The, the big sins that we'd never do, like, we aren't that kind of person. At least I'm not that kind of person. And I hope you can see that, like, false religion, dead religion is everywhere. Like, this is not just for church people or conservative people. Uh, It's very subjective because we just kind of use it to make ourselves comfortable in whatever culture we're in. And Jesus comes to smash that. Look with me in uh, Luke 18. Flip over to Luke 18 because we see it even more clearly here. Jesus tells a parable. Luke 18, page 1629. If you are uh, in the Pew Bible... Jesus says to some who were confident of their own righteousness, like that's the false religion or or self-righteousness, and look down on everybody else, like that's the, the big sins that they don't do. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, robbers evildoers adulterers or even like this tax collector i fast twice a week and give a tenth of all i get but the tax collector stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said god have mercy on me a sinner i tell you that this man rather than the other went home justified before god for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted do you hear the exact, like, paradigm that Jesus is addressing here? That the religious guy, the Pharisee, he had, a, he had an incredible track record. Fasting twice a week and giving his money, like, food and money. Those are the hardest things for us to let go of. And this guy had some, some rhythms there. But you see his self-righteousness come out and how he looked on, down on others. The, the, the righteousness came from the comparison, that at least I'm not like this guy. At least I'm not like this tax collector. And so the question for all of us is: what What are, what is our false religion? What are our big sins, and what are our, what sins in our life have we relegated to to small sins? What What would you say? Well, at least I don't do that. Yeah, I'm not perfect, but at least I don't do that. Is it being right on theological issues, like having great doctrine? Like, sure, I don't, you know, I might not like. Be super involved with the poor or whatever I'm not like a social justice liberal but at least I have really good theology I mean I do struggle with pornography off and on but at least I'm married to someone of the opposite sex I am you know I'm not perfect I'm a very anxious negative person but at least I take care of my kids better than that that mom does and this might be too much, in, too much inception or whatever, but I just want to throw this out there. Because I, I wonder if legalism is our big sin. Mm-hmm. Where, like, the actual, like, having, like, things that we do becomes the big sin that we don't do. If we don't put any effort into walking with Jesus, that's a little sin. But at least I'm not a legalistic rule follower. Like, it's like reverse Phariseeism. I, I don't know if this is true. i just throwing it out there for you to, you to pray about. But we excuse our disobedience to Jesus as a little sin because at least it's not empty rule following. And, you know, maybe some of us are okay on this. Maybe some of us, you know, by the grace of God, have rooted out false religion. I know I have not. Uh, And for the sake of your own soul, I, I would invite you to consider this because there's a lot at stake. In verse 14 of Luke 18 that I just read, Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. It's not just like, well, of course, the religious guy who was crushing it got in, and the grace of God is that this loser sneaks in too. No, he says the tax collector, the the loser sneaks in, and this guy does not. It's a matter of life and death. It's a matter of knowing God or not knowing God. Going into the feast with Jesus or being left outside grumbling about who Jesus invited to the feast. Jesus smashes our religion, our false religion, because he loves us. And because the only way to get to the, hev- get to get to the kingdom of heaven is, is through being spiritually bankrupt, like the presumably the crew that are gathering around the table with, with Jesus, people who have no hope at getting to God. But Jesus is not just uh, a wreck at Ralph. He doesn't just smash things. He also builds things. Uh, flip back to Matthew 9. Uh, we see uh, Jesus kind of telling the, the Pharisees, telling us what God actually desires. Verse 13 in Matthew, or I'm sorry, Mark. Matthew, sorry, getting confused here. We're reading Mark throughout the week, preaching on Matthew. There we go. Matthew 9, verse uh, 13. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus is quoting from the book of Hosea, uh, he's, and it should suffice it to say that Jesus is all about the Old Testament, so we, we're all about Jesus here, and he, if we follow him, we'll, we will follow him to the Old Testament, um, and so uh, flip with me to Hosea 6. I want to see this quote that Jesus is bringing to the, the Pharisees. book of Hosea is a, a pretty mind-blowing book uh, where um, God is, is pleading with his people to come back into to covenant love uh, with, with him and not run away. So this is what he says in Hosea 6, and this is what Jesus is quoting uh, to the Pharisees, to the, to the rule followers. What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears Therefore, I cut you in pieces with my prophets. I killed you with, my, with the words of my mouth. My judgments flashed like lightning upon you. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. God's addressing an issue with his chosen people, and it's the issue of love. He says your love is fickle. It's like the morning mist. Like it's there, you know, in the morning when you get some coffee and you're feeling good, but then the day starts and it just blows away and you're completely distracted. It says that their, their love is gone and in the place of it are sacrifices or burnt offerings where they have no love on a heart level for God, but they are being uh, relatively faithful about following these details of, of offering religious sacrifices. What is he saying? What is God saying? What is Jesus getting at by quoting this passage to the Pharisees? Well, there's a really beautiful vortex, a linguistic vortex, if you will, going on in this passage, Uh, because some of your Bibles might have said, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifices. The NIV that we're preaching out says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus quotes the passage by saying mercy. What's going on here? Well, we have two languages happening here, because the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. And in Hebrew, verse six here says, I desire chesed. It's like this like g- guttural, like, ugh, I, I can't really do. I was really bad at Hebrew in seminary. Uh, it's a word called hesed that is translated steadfast or covenant, never-ending love. I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. It's permanent love. And then the Old Testament was tr- translated from Hebrew into Greek. It came out as Elias in Greek, which is mercy. And while it's kind of confusing if we're trying to grapple with like three different languages here, because we got English and we got Hebrew and we got Greek, I think it's also really beautiful. Like the realities of God can't be confined to any one language. And so if you'll just bear with me and walk through some of this language stuff, I, I hope the Holy Spirit will use it. Because Jesus is showing that what God is really interested in is not our religious performance. He doesn't care about our record with the big sins, whatever they are. Our sacrifices are burnt offerings. The crazy thing is that God does command sacrifices and burnt offerings, uh, but the point is not the sacrifices or burnt offerings. He says they're pointless if they're not coming from hesed, they're not coming from steadfast love. The best understanding for this is marriage. The best understanding for or or steadfast love is the exact kind of love we're going for in just normal human marriage. And it just makes sense because, listen, do you want your spouse or future spouse to, like, love you, to, like, feel affection in their heart, like, have emotions about you and want to know you intimately? Intimately, yes. But do you want your spouse to sacrifice for you, to serve you and do stuff they might not normally do if they were picking because they love you, to work with you in building life together? Absolutely. So the two, like, steadfast love, And sacrifice are inseparable. Because, you know, obviously, it's silly to say you have deep affection for someone if loving them, like, never costs you anything, and you never, like, lift a finger to, you know, care for them or be about them. And, and of course, it's, like, cold and empty if you're just, like, a marriage bot, just, like, perfectly doing everything that your spouse could want, uh, but you have no actual joy or love or affection for them. This is the paradigm that Jesus is bringing to bear on on the Pharisees in Matthew 9. They've been dealing with God like marriage bots. They've been dealing with God uh, like using his stuff to be, feel okay about themselves. Exacting obedience about some things, not because they love God, but because they want to feel a certain way. And completely missing the affection and intimacy and, and mercy. And Jesus makes this clear in the next passage in Matthew 9, if you flip back there. In Matthew 9, Jesus, Jesus is addressing uh, a religious sacrifice. It says, Then John's disciples came and asked him, How is it that we and the, and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus gets at the religious sacrifice of fasting, which is where we go without food uh, for our relationship with God. And Jesus' disciples aren't fasting, but we have the disciples of John and then also the Pharisees that are fasting. And it's not an accident that this This encounter happens right after the story we just read, that Jesus would say, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And then, boom, Jesus is addressing some religious people about a sacrifice. Jesus gets asked about why his disciples aren't fasting, and he answers. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is still with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. Then they will fast. So Jesus, out of this steadfast love passage in, in Hosea, he puts a smack in the middle of the marriage metaphor by calling himself the bridegroom. All throughout the Old Testament, God presents himself to his people as the groom, as the, as the, as the husband, as the, the, the lover. And Jesus is saying, that's who I am. And so he's saying, his disciples, they're enjoying my presence. And so there's feasting and celebration. Jesus invites us to the party and we and we got to notice that in verse 15 the point is him he makes himself the point of religious sacrifice the point of fasting is a way to commune with him is a way of mourning the the passage says will they mourn while he's with them there's only when he's taken away and so he's foreseeing a time when he will be killed, resurrected, and ascend to heaven, and the disciples won't have him in the flesh, in which case there will be some mourning, and then they will fast. But until then, you don't need to do it, because I'm here. The party is here. I think it's so funny that J- John's disciples and the Pharisees, that they're all indignant, and they're doing something, and they don't know why. They're like, why do we fast? How come, What's what's going on? They're like bitter and kind of grumbling about why his disciples aren't, like, trying as hard as they are. And, G- and Jesus is showing us that what God desires isn't just cold sacrifice for sacrifice's sake. He desires marriage love, which includes sacrifice, but it's all within the context of the steadfast, covenantal, never-ending, no matter-what love. And sacrifices flow out of that love. But without that love, without that marriage love, sacrifices are pointless and we know this beyond a shadow of a doubt because Jesus shows us the ultimate expression of steadfast love the ultimate expression of hessed or marriage love when he loved us the church his bride literally to death he loved us so much that he could die and he did not because we were awesome but because he had mercy on us in our hopeless naked spiritually bankrupt state he went to the cross and took the punishment for all of our sins all of our little sins that we've minimized in our heads so small to where we don't feel a need for we don't need feel a need for forgiveness that strongly he knows the depths of our sin and only when we see the depth of our sin and see G- see it put on Jesus can we be set free from that that nagging sense of I'm not good enough and I need some false religion to kind of make myself feel okay. Which is why the sin of false religion is so terrible, so pernicious and sneaky because it keeps us from seeing our sin in the incredible act of marriage, steadfast love that Jesus shows if we use false religion to minimize the things that we struggle with and use the fact that we avoid these other big sins over here to make ourselves feel good, then the cross and Jesus himself are just not going to be that big a deal to us. Because if we have little sins, then we have a little Jesus and a little cross. And so the diagnostic for this then is just to kind of check how your heart feels about Jesus. If, it, if like me, sometimes it feels pretty cold and ambivalent or like you want to like go to war with Jesus, but then you want him to go away so you can take a break. we we got to consider our false religion, the degree to which we've minimized our little sins to where we don't feel feel a need for him. Because it's the Pharisees, that were winning in that day, that felt pretty good about themselves because of what they did. And they are the ones that were estranged, that were cold, were distant, were even resistant to Jesus. And this passage has been piercing me for a month or so now. Jesus was at a meal, uh, not, not with uh, the sinners like at Matthew's house. He's, he goes to a church person's house. He goes to a ruler of the synagogue who had it all together, and he's eating with all these religious people. This is in Luke 7. And surrounded by all these religious people, I imagine they were talking some really highfalutin uh, doctrine and theology, this prostitute comes in, kneels at Jesus' feet, weeping and covers his feet with her tears and pours out ointment and wipes the ointment on his feet with her hair. And the same thing happens. The Pharisee starts grumbling, like, does Jesus know who this woman is? Does he know where she's been and what, she's, what she does? And Jesus says, those who have been forgiven much Love much. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. This pierces me because when I see coldness in my heart towards Jesus, I, I gotta, I gotta get alone with God and be like, like what am I not seeing? It's that what, what, what is it that keeps me from like entering into that headspace that that prostitute had, where she was just weeping at Jesus' feet just pouring out a year's wage or months wages of ointment on his feet cuz she loved him so much cuz she saw him forgiving her in the depth of her sin and within this paradigm we see that steadfast love for God is not something that we're going to go out and like try to like muster up this week but it is a response to seeing Jesus on the cross and the depth of our sin call is not to make yourself love God more. Our love God grows by the power of the Spirit when we actually see some of the depth of our sin and we see Jesus paying for it. This is where mercy comes in, in our linguistic vortex. Mercy is not getting what we deserve, and on the cross we see the mercy of God <laughs> when we really believe that we were messed up enough to need the Son of God to die for our sins. Now, what do we do with this? How can we be cured of our dead religion? If you are here today and you're like me and you're like, "Yes, I would like more love for Jesus. I would like to love Jesus more. I would like to know what it's like to experience that abandon to just like weep at his feet in love and affection, to feel safe enough to do that around Jesus. what What can we do? Because I don't think the answer is just like thinking about it harder. And the answer might be, like, go read a book about the atonement, um, all about that if you want a recommendation. But I think Scripture gives us something way more practical than that. Let me just read to you James 1, 27. Let Scripture flesh out what Jesus is saying here. James 1, 27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Do you hear the antidote, the the cure to our dead religion, and the invitation to, to religion that is acceptable and pure and faultless to God? It's showing how steadfast love transforms in towards the poor and the helpless. When Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, he asks, there's a dead guy, almost dead guy on the side of the road and two religious people walk by because they would have broke the rules if they touched him. He was a Gentile, he was bleeding, they would have been unclean. He asks, who was the better neighbor? Who loved his neighbor in that parable? And the answer is the one who showed him mercy. Jesus says, what you did for the least of these, my brothers, you did for me. The the Bible is, is associating just with crystal clear Connection that how we respond to the poor and the helpless is directly connected to our love for Jesus, and this is like a realm where I think maybe we as Baptists don't don't navigate as as frequently. Is this just some like liberal social justice, you know, mumbo jumbo or something? I don't think it is, because it's not a call to like radical. Let's end generation in our in poverty in our generation or something like that, because I think it's way more of an invitation. The reason why caring for uh, widows and orphans, the poor and the helpless, is true religion, is pure, faultless religion, It's because nothing will make you see your need for Jesus than trying to actually care for people that are not like you, the people who are at the table with Jesus as the worst of the worst or helpless this is so profound to me. It's very new in kind of my experience because Camille and I have had a few adventures in foster care uh, in trying to be obedient to this passage. And I have lots of doubts about any good that we did for the kids that came through our house. But I am 100% certain that God, in his mercy, used those kids to show us the incredible depths of sin in, in our hearts. The ugly that came out of us was shocking while we're trying to you know, do the Lord's work, if you will, and my, my own self, just the selfishness and judgmental spirit that came up towards the kids or the parents of the kids that we were working with, it was just devastating. How How just like instinctively it was like, well, at least I don't do that. At least I'm not like that. If we want to see our need for Jesus, if we want to explore the depths of our our forgiveness and the steadfast love of mercy that he's shown to us, then we can obey and seek to show steadfast love and mercy to the poor and the helpless. Like to the point of, like like the Good Samaritan, he inconvenienced himself. He got off and walked. He put the man on his donkey. He dressed his wounds and got bloody and messy. He put his money down at the end to care for him, to actually change the way that he lived. He was late to where he was going. And this is, Ultimately, an invitation to a banquet. An invitation. We see Jesus identify himself with the poor and the helpless. Of so what you did to the least of these, you did to me. Is an invitation to be with Jesus. <clears throat> and just like it says, when the the wedding guests can't mourn when the bridegroom is with them. Showing up to the poor and the helpless is a, a feast, a celebration because you begin to see what God has saved you from. You see the mercy of God and the gratitude that comes from that. You see the work on the cross for all the selfishness in your sin because it's just like so easy. Anybody can feel like a good Christian if you live, you know, in a small, rigid life where nobody can inconvenience you. There's nobody that like messes up your, your rhythms and you only hang out with people or listen to podcasts that are, you know, believe the same false religion that you do. And so I invite you to do two things this week. First, is just to, just to listen to the Holy Spirit. Listen to, to God. Take 30 minutes and a pad of paper and, just, and a pen and say, what, what, what are my big sins and my little sins? I mean, just listen. See what comes to mind. Probably, if, if it, what happens to you happens to me, what happened to me happened to you, uh, it'll just be all these people that really annoy you <laughs> will, will come to your mind, and you'll be like, you know, and like, oh, that might be one of my big sins, because at least I'm not like this super annoying person. And just to listen—there's no condemnation, there's no guilt, there's no shame. It's just a matter of like hearing what the spirit might reveal, and then repenting of it. And then lastly, uh, after maybe after you do that, is to to get up and seek to seek to put. insert yourself into the lives of the poor or the helpless and start praying about that. There's lots of ways, but I just want to give you a super simple way that I think could be a great way to just start exploring. It's very temporary. And that's to, to volunteer at Our Brother's Keeper, the homeless shelter here in town. It's a really, I think it's a perfect setup because one, it's scheduled 2 it only the long like the, you can sign up for just an hour and 3 it's very relational like this isn't just like going and making soup or something like that what they what they need help with is people to just like be present in the shelter with the guests just like literally hang out with them And talk to them and get to know them, just like Jesus did at the feast. Like there might be some little help them make a phone call or something like that. But it's incredibly relational to just like show up to people who might be very different than us and think think about life in a very different paradigm or have different priorities. And it's a really simple thing because you can actually like put it in your calendar. You know, sometimes when you do mercy ministry, like they interrupt you. We see that happen to Jesus all the time. And so this might be like a baby step where you can just say like, you know, on this night for an hour or two hours. You know I want I want to try the, try this out, and they close in like the middle of May, so you know it wouldn't even be that long for the summertime. Something you can invite a friend to and I just want you to hear me say like this is not a call to like radical social justice movement where we're going to like eradicate poverty. This is a, a desire to see Jesus more, to identify with him and the people that he came to love, and to let the Holy Spirit use uh, our actions, use how we live. To cultivate the heart that loves Jesus more, Jesus says in Matthew 15, uh, "If you obey my commands, you abide in my love." And I think that makes sense in a, in a parenting level, like when kids obey parents, like the, those rules generally are for the good. You know, not running into the street, like that's a loving thing to make a rule. And so, if you feel unloved by Jesus, you consider you maybe even resistant to him you know, consider your obedience and the, the degree to which you experience abiding in his love comes comes when we do what he commands. And I think a really simple way could be to open your heart to the poor and the helpless, uh, like Jesus did for us. He came to us when we were poor and helpless and he died for us. And my prayer is that as we obey Jesus, the spirit will use that to make the gospel get deeper into our souls and ignite our love for the king who died. Let me pray. Oh, Father, how we need you. Uh, Father, I pray that you would, um, just with your spirit, create a um, an atmosphere of grace and freedom to explore this, to just be curious about what our false religion might be, our big sins and our little sins. I pray, Father, that